Let's start off in prayer. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. O Lord God, we thank you for your scriptures, which teach us about our salvation in Jesus Christ. And for many of us here this morning, much of what we have learned and believed have been taught to us from childhood by our mothers to believe in the Bible, to put our faith in Jesus. And we thank you for your care even of us through our families. And we have many mothers and grandmothers here this morning who continue to faithfully teach and model for their children and grandchildren the Christian faith. We ask that you would bless these efforts and bring our children to faith at early ages and that they would grow in Christ continually. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And Lord God, we see these ongoing uses and goals of Scripture coming to fruition in our own lives, and that you use it to cause us to become mature in Christ. And we pray this morning that you would apply your word to us again, cause us to grow, cause us to be in a position where we can help others. And we pray that you'd show us the power of your words now in our time together this morning. Amen. Well, before we begin our little mini-series in Colossians, uh, the book of the month I recommend, these are in news and notes. Uh, so every month I pick a book that I think is valuable for a theme this year. And this year it's Tim Keller's book, Every Good Endeavor, Connecting Your Work to God's Work. And so the link is there if you want to pick it up. But it's a wonderful book that talks about how, you know, we bring, uh, we bring problems into work, we have problems at work, but yet work has been designed by God from creation. And he applies the gospel like only Tim Keller can do to our lives and our ministries and our life and our work. So I encourage you to pick up this book. Well, we're going to actually take a break from our series in the Gospel of Luke this morning, and we're going to be doing a three-week mini-series from Colossians. And uh, this mini-series reflects upon our theme, Contentment in Christ for the Year, and how it works itself out in the life of a church. So we'll be looking at chapter 3, which is really the heart of the message of the book of Colossians. Uh, so today, Colossians 3, verses 1 to 4, being intent on eternal reality. In Colossians 3, then we'll continue in verses 5 to 11, which talk about being renewed in the image of God, and finally in 12 to 17, about becoming a Christ-like community. So today we're looking at this topic, being intent on eternal reality, gaining the glory of Jesus Christ. You know, when someone comes to faith in Christ and they're converted, they're changed immediately. They become a new creation in Christ, and all things have become new in their life. And one of the things that's constantly amazing to us as we see new believers in Christ is that they display, it seems like, almost an immediate level of maturity. Well, we know it's not there yet, but they understand what the goal is, and that goal is to become like Jesus Christ, and to gain the glory of heaven. And they're zealous for that. It's so encouraging and refreshing. 
But then often enters into their life people who advance human religious advice, programs that promise a well-defined Christianity, or an easy Christianity, or an immediate super-spirituality in their life and how they should live. And historically in the church, these have taken on three different forms. One is to add regulations to the Christian life so that you can surpass other Christians and be better than they are. We refer to this as legalism, right? To become a super-Christian or a true Christian. The second form that this kind of human philosophy enters into is diluting or deleting biblical requirements for holiness. And historically, if we refer to the first problem as legalism, we refer to this problem as license, giving people freedom that the scriptures don't give. And so it's creating a better version of Christianity, an easier version, one that's perhaps more culturally appealing. Well, the third form, the third category is mixing in worldliness or mixing in special experiences to make Christianity somehow more powerful. And this historically is called syncretism, mixing things together. In other words, if you want a supercharged Christianity plus, you know, this is the kind that's being talked about here. Now, often these are done with good intentions, actually, from other believers, but as you can see, all three of these forms in some way is saying that the gospel's not sufficient. In some way, they're saying the scriptures are not sufficient. And it really hinders the pursuit of the glory of Christ. And so human-made religion, really a false teaching, it constantly is vying to overpower the purity of the God-given religion, if you will, of Christ alone. And so this is a problem in the church at Colossae. And that's why I bring that up this morning. It was a hindrance to this church's pursuit of the glory of Christ. So this church in Colossae is in the Lycus Valley. It was founded by Epaphras in the early 50s. He was a missionary that was sent off from the church of Ephesus because the gospel had made so much progress there. It was part of the overflow of the ministry of that church was to start new churches in the valleys. Well, a few years later, there was uh, so much progress of the gospel in the region, but Epaphras was concerned about some false teachings that had started to infiltrate particularly this church at Colossae. And so he sends a report off to Paul, the apostle. And he's in prison. We don't know exactly where he's in prison, whether it was Rome or Ephesus or Caesarea at the time. You know, Paul made his prison tours and ended up staying in so many of them. But in response to Epaphras' concern, the Apostle Paul wrote this letter to the Colossian church to oppose false teaching and to protect the Christians from it. And he would accomplish it, as you will see in the book of Colossians, by simply exalting the excellencies of Jesus Christ. And so a brief overview of the book, it's a very, very short book, but chapter 1, he just openly declares the supremacy of Jesus Christ. And then in chapter 2, he deals with some of the details of this philosophy or mixture, if you will, of philosophies that had entered into the church. And as you look at it, you can sort of see different philosophies in there. You can see Judaizers in there who want to return to Judaism. 
You can see um, folk religion from the region in there. You can see philosophies of the day. In fact, they're all opposed to the gospel. So let me just read to you this paragraph or two before where we are. So if you're in your Bibles, starting in chapter 2, verse 16, and see what you see there. It says, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. One problem. Let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism, that's harsh treatment of the body, and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed out without reason by a sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with the growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why then, as if you're still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Referring to things that all perish as they're used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed the appearance of wisdom. There's the key phrase. These have indeed the appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So then in chapter 3, where we're beginning next here, he addresses this topic of how we live out the Christian gospel and what it's really about. And that's where we begin in chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. It's a transition and it's, a ta- and it's an attack on these man-made religious ideas. And so then our passage this morning is verses 1 through 4. If then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory." Notice the emphasis on Jesus Christ four times, his name is mentioned, and our union or our relationship with him. This is what produces Christian maturity. That's where it comes from. That's the pure gospel. It's not in man-made religions or inventions that have become so popular, no matter what period or what culture you live in. And then Paul is going to proceed to explain this, because this is just an introductory paragraph, and so the next two weeks we'll be looking at verses 5 to 17, and he lays it all out. Well, in his encouragement to us this morning, the main idea is to understand our union with Christ, our relationship with him, and that, if we understand it well, will invigorate our pursuit of heavenly glory. And so in this passage, the Apostle Paul is explaining how our new life in Christ results in a new goal for life, the goal of gaining Christ. I mean, earlier he wrote to the Thessalonian church in 2 Thessalonians 2, 14, and it was for this that he called you by our gospel, that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. And in this passage, we are urged to be intent upon this goal by means of a command and a promise. And so in verses 1 to 2, there's this command, pursue the heavenly glory, because that's where Christ is right now. And then verses 3 to 4, there's the promise, 
that you're going to obtain the heavenly glory when Christ returns. And what's involved again in this whole pursuit is going to be explained in much more detail in verses 5 to 17 over the next two weeks. So today in this passage, we're really looking at motivation, motivations for pursuing these things. And so first of all, we're commanded to pursue this heavenly glory in verses 1 to 2 because that's where Christ is right now. Very simple. If you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things that are above, not on the things that are on the earth. And as I already pointed out, you, you notice these two phrases in here, with Christ. There's really four of them in this whole section. And it's talking about what we know as the doctrine of union with Christ. And it speaks of this mysterious intimate relationship that Christ has with his people, this relationship, and it's discussed actually in a very, very a variety of ways throughout the Bible. But this morning, we're only going to look at Colossians 3 to understand it. And here, believers are described as being united with Jesus in four things. His death, his resurrection, his life, and his glory. We're united with Jesus in all four of those things. We're represented by him. Of course, he died and was raised to life for us in our place, right? And we have profit in him. We have a share in the inheritance and a fullness of the glory and its anticipation in this life here. And so the outline is pretty simple in the first two verses. We're not looking at a lot of text this morning, but we see in verses 1 to 2 that we're united with Christ in his resurrection, and so we ought to go for the goal and seek that heavenly glory where the ultimate outcome is. And so this is the beginning point of understanding the Christian life right here. If you have been raised up with Christ, if you've been raised up with Christ, it assumes that we've died to sin, that we're living some kind of a new life in righteousness. It's really probably one very simple definition of a Christian if you've been raised with Christ. A new life has come about by the work of the Spirit of God in regenerating us or making us born again. And that gets shown by the fact that we repent of our sin and put our faith in Jesus Christ. Conversion. In fact, there's a great illustration in Romans chapter 6 where it talks about our baptism. And it says, we have been buried with him through baptism into death in order that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So our life has been changed. And so this word, if, if you've been raised up with Christ, really has two meanings. It has this meaning about our life being completely changed, but then also being raised up with Christ speaks about our future prospect in heaven. And spiritually speaking, it means we actually live in heaven right now, although we live here. We live in the kingdom. As Ephesians chapter 2 puts it, God raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, in order that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. In one pastor theologian, Charles Hodge, put it this way, he said, though we occupy the lowest place in his kingdom, the mere suburbs of the heavenly city, still we are in it. And perhaps that's a good image of understanding how it could be that we're there, but we live here. And therefore, we're supposed to go for the goal and seek the heavenly glory. Verse 1b says, keep seeking the things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. 
or to seek or to aspire to, Scriptures say, to set our hearts upon, to aim at things above, which means the whole realm above, the heavenly world, the glory there. Why? Because that's where Christ is right now. And our thoughts are supposed to be upon Jesus Christ. That's where he's exalted in honor and authority and all power. In other words, that's where we're soon going to be. So since we're united to Christ in his resurrection, then which is displayed in a resurrected life, our aim is to get that share in that resurrection glory on the final day when he returns. The command gets repeated then in verse 2, set your mind on the things above, not on things that are on the earth. So seek, seek is now described as think. That's the attitude that we need here in our seeking. In other words, we're not only supposed to seek heaven, but think heaven. Think about it. And we need to set our minds upon and think about and give attention to and constantly fix our thoughts on heavenly realities, not the opposite. And the contrast is to set our minds on, to think about, to be preoccupied with, and to fix our thought and be intense upon things upon the earth. So, but of course, the most important question of all is, so how do we do that? Right? Perhaps that's the most important question in Christian living. Because the reality is, and we all recognize the truth, is that we live in two worlds. We live in heavenly, in heavenly anticipation, and we live as citizens of heaven, but yet we live here in the world that we're in. And so the apostles' answer in this passage is to have our thoughts controlled by our union with Jesus Christ, our relationship with him. That's how we do it. We need to anticipate the full enjoyment of heaven by living it out now here, enjoying those things. And if we enjoy him now, then we'll be able to obviously set our hearts and minds on things above. To stay focused, so some simple things, there'll be some more details coming in the next few weeks, but here are just some simple things, like staying focused. What keeps your mind focused on things above? Scripture, time in prayer with God, time with your brothers and sisters in church, somewhere in the ministry under the scriptures, doing ministry, and being concerned for Christ's interests in our life, not just living our lives as to live our lives, but thinking through what might God actually be doing differently in our life right now. Where does he want us to take, take us? What is next for us in his calling? So we have a new life in Christ, as the scriptures say, it's a life of righteousness. It's a life of resurrection. And we have a new goal in Christ. That's the goal of glory. And the more we understand our relationship to Jesus, our union with him, the more we're going to be impelled to pursue that heavenly glory. And so that's why this command then is followed by a promise in verses 3 and 4. We are promised to get it. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So being united with Christ in his resurrection, that presupposes something, doesn't it? Being united with Christ in his death. And also, it looks forward, and it presupposes that something glorious is coming if you're being resurrected. And so it presupposes that as well. And this full assurance that we have in Christ that Indeed, everything will be ours to its fullest. There's more coming. And so we're promised this new life, but it's hidden for the time being in Christ. 
with him. But when he returns, it'll all be revealed in its full glory. And that should communicate to us a wonderful assurance that it's being protected in the right place. And so the flow of the passage here in the last couple verses, in verse 3 and 4, is that we were united by Christ in his death in order to be united with him in his life. And we're united with him in his life because we're going to be united with him in glory. And so verse 3 begins, For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Now many of us here probably came to repentance and faith only after a very significant time living in sin. But we died to sin, to worldly pursuits, and the old order of things when we were converted. And of course there's two senses in which the Apostle's talking about how we have died to that old way of life. I mean, Jesus died in our place, first of all, and we were united with him in that death, and it's applied to us. Our sin has been paid for. But there's also the sense in which we've died to that life in reality and what you can see in actuality because the Holy Spirit has been given to indwell us and produce change in our life. And we're thankful over this. Yet so many people, it sometimes appears to them when they look at us as believers that our life isn't that great. Sometimes even to us in moments of weakness and times of suffering and seasons maybe of spiritual drought in our lives, we can wonder the same thing. Is this really that great of a life? But we have to remind ourselves that this new life is only lived partially now, and that's the key because it's hidden with Christ in God. We only live it partially now. Much of the glory remains hidden, and we all long for that day. For the time being, it's concealed, as the Scriptures say, with Christ in God. That's a secure place for all the rest of it to be kept. It's a double emphasis to say it's with Christ in God. It's being protected for us and preserved for us by God. So when you wonder about the joy of the Christian life, and the abundance that you seem to be missing, you can comfort your soul because God has ordered the greater parts of your glory yet to come. So be strong in your faith. And don't worry or despair for your life. God's faithful and he'll reveal the rest of your life and your glory with Christ at his appointed time. So then he continues then in verse 4, we're united with Christ in his life with the intended result that we're going to be united with Christ in his glory. That's the proper time. That's when it's all going to be revealed. So when Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. At the return of Christ, that's when we receive the fullness. Now notice in verse 3 that our life was with Christ. But then when you get to verse 4, Christ himself is said to be our life. That simply shows this extent of this union that we have with Jesus Christ, who is our life, and verse 4 means that Christ is the source of our life. It means that he's the center of our life. It means that he's the goal of our life, of every believer's life, of our life together as a Christian community. In other words, our life is not our own. We live together consumed with Jesus Christ. Christ is our all. 
And we echo the Apostle Paul's words in Philippians 1 where he said, For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. So our union with Christ will be complete at this time and forevermore when Christ is revealed in glory to all the earth and we will live with him forever in our resurrected glory. So the application for us is to have faith. A faith that is a secure faith. A faith that is an assured faith of our salvation. And then, because we have that faith, we will keep on pursuing with resolve and with intensity the heavenly glory. I want you to turn with me to another passage in the Bible. It's the beginning of 1 Peter, chapter 1. If you can't find it, you can just listen along. But 1 Peter, chapter 1, beginning in verse 3. Of course, Peter writes a very long introduction here, but we'll just read the first few words and then skip to the end. But he echoes the same thinking. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And then you skip down to verse 13. Therefore, gird your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So this promise of obtaining the glory of Christ is to be owned by faith. That's how we get it. And it's a promise then that motivates us to keep the command from the first part of our verse to pursue the heavenly glory because as we understand our relationship to Jesus Christ, it invigorates us to want more of who he is and what he promises us. So our union with Christ again means that we are in Christ. It means that we are in him in position. That's who we stand righteous in. It means that we live in that realm. It means that really our destiny is attached to his. Christ is in us. He lives in us by his Holy Spirit. We are like Christ and are continually to be conformed to his character, which will come out in the rest of Colossians. And we are with Christ constantly in a relationship. It's a mystery, this relationship with Jesus that's revealed to us in the scriptures, and it's something that we know, it's something that we continually learn, And it's something that we can sense. And that is, another way to put it, is closeness to Christ. Experiencing that closeness and living out the joy and the peace and the power. So we've learned today that this is a strong motivation to pursue heavenly glory and it assures us that it will be ours. May we be a people captivated by this union that we have with Christ to such a degree that we pursue it until we obtain it. And the Apostle Paul then is going to, after this opening paragraph, get in more closely into the details of what we're looking at. So you can read it in advance for yourself, but I want to read it to you right now so you can be thinking about what's coming. So in verses 5, then the next section, so remember this is all introduced, and this is not separated from the rest of the chapter. This is an introduction to the rest of the chapter. So all of this is true. You know what it's about. We know that we're supposed to have our minds set on heaven and pursuing that goal. So this is what it's like. 
Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here, there is not Greek or Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and is in all. Put on, therefore, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so also you must forgive. And above all these things, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thanksgiving in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So this will be our mini-series in Colossians, our break from Luke, and we'll get back to Luke because the best is yet to come in the gospel account. But we'll be talking about this in terms of our annual theme this year, which is contentment in Christ. And uh, I want to read to you again our contentment definition we're working from, and then pray for us. And that is, is that we desire to live in a state of spiritual satisfaction and peace and fulfillment and joy and restfulness in Jesus. And to achieve this, we have to learn, all of us, to stop relying on our own efforts to live life and do ministry that we're so prone to do, which only mimics contentment in Christ and often results in undesirable outcomes for ourselves and and, and others. Instead, we need to grow in our reliance upon the gospel for all good things, trusting in the power of the Holy Spirit and appreciating more fully our Lord Jesus Christ for who he is, what he's accomplished, and the eternal benefits he purchased for us. This course of action is going to lead to true contentment in Christ and display the fruits of the Spirit, which will bless us and others around us. So let me pray for us. But Lord Jesus, we thank you for our union with you, that you died for us, that we've been raised with you, that we live our life now in you, that you are our life, and that we look forward to our resurrected glory with you. This whole gospel story is our whole life and our whole passion and our whole goal. And we pray that you would continue to stir us up to these things, to understand the scriptures well, to pursue them in the power of the Holy Spirit so that we can rejoice in the work that you do in our life individually and as a community of faith. And we pray these things, Lord Jesus, so that you would gain more glory in us. Amen.